Are celebrating a momentous anniversary this week. Yes. What? Wait. I don't know. What I'm talking about is something that Alex Jones said. Oh God. Almost two years ago today. <laughs> what did he say? He said that lesbians uh, want to quote get you in a dungeon unquote and eat your brain. So I want to ask you, Mary. <laughs> When we're in our dungeon. Yes, I love our dungeon. It's I think we decorated it really cute. Our dungeon is so cute. I think so too. I thought the like the granite countertops of our torture tables were mm. a nice touch. Yeah, and I really just think all those straight cis white men just like I think they just really appreciate it like right before they die. Absolutely. Little a little comfort. <laughs> what I wanted to ask you though is do you have a preference for how brains are prepared when you eat people's brains in our dungeon? Um, I'm, I know this is controversial, but I'm really into steaming things right now. <laughs> <laughs> it preserves the nutrients. Ooh! Yuck! Okay, no more of that. No more of that. No! So welcome, everyone. It's the body episode. It is the body episode of the Manic Episodes. It's our second episode um, we want to thank you guys for the feedback that we got from episode one, which has been fabulous. It's been really sweet. Yeah. Yeah. There were some comments that made me cry. Yeah. They were just me too. like, I'm just really touched. I, did, I honestly, I was like, yeah, I don't know if people listen to it. It's just kind of fun for us that we want to yeah. do, but this has just been really exciting. So just thank you for your comments and keep them coming. Um, yeah. And if you have ideas for future episodes, we have plenty, so we don't need you. Um, but I'm just kidding. Our first episode, Mary, I think you would agree. Recording it was pretty much a breeze. Yeah. We are both bipolar. I think that made the conversation a lot easier. Yes. But we both knew that we wanted the second episode to be about the experience of being fat. Yes. Our first idea was that we were going to make it parallel to our first episode by talking about dating while fat. Yes. And... Damn it. We sat down and recorded about an hour of a podcast. It just didn't feel right. It did not go well. But what do you think went wrong? Um, I think that the concept of dating while fat is actually quite narrow. And because like being fat is so like it's overwhelmingly intersects with all other identities. It's very difficult to divorce it from um from just like actual existence. So I felt, and, and I do this too, because as, like, as a public figure, when I do interviews, when I think about staying on topic, or I think if I think of a topic, I'm trying really hard to stay on that. And so I think what was happening for me is I was having a difficult time returning back to, okay, but how does this relate to romantic relationships? And there was just so much more context that I wanted to provide that I was like, but that's not what we were going to do. And I felt like it didn't like I I don't know, like I hadn't given my, myself permission to, for us to change things as we went along. Right. Yeah. Honey, I think wh what came up for you? You were talking at one point in, in our first crack at this about the feeling of being romantically and sexually undesirable as mm. a fat person at mm. times in your life. Mm -hmm. And I found myself during that first recording 
kind of interrupting you and saying, well, yeah, I find that crazy because you're just the most attractive thing in the whole world to me. I can't imagine being more attracted to somebody than I am to you. And I think it derailed the conversation a little bit. Oh. I think that enters a narrative that sort of hinges the idea of fatness being okay if you find somebody to mm. love you in spite of your fatness. Wow. Or, you know, if, if you find if you find someone who finds you desirable, then it's okay to be fat. You know, if you right. happen to stumble upon someone. I just right. feel like that's a narrative I've heard. And I saw something on the internet a few months ago that I loved that said, support women you aren't attracted to. Ooh. Um, and I'm, I'm going to tweak that a little bit to say, support women even if it has nothing to do with their attractiveness to you. I just don't think that that was the most important part of the conversation. And I feel like it hitched the topic in a lot of ways to our relationship. And I don't want this conversation to be about our relationship per se. Mm. I think it could go there. But I really just want this to be an episode where people can hear you and hear about your journey and can hear about the historical context of your relationship with your body. Thank you, honey. Yeah. That was great. Yes. So I... I felt like I really, I wanted to give context for where I sort of came from and the stories that we tell ourselves and the stories that our genetics tell us, the stories that our parents tell us, especially for anybody that's listening, that's fat. And I appreciate that, you know, as we were talking about this, that I just kept being like, are you sure it's okay if I, you know, sort of take the reins here? But I think it's important to distinguish that you are your traditional straight sized person that wears smaller pants than I do. But other than that, like that's the only real difference between our our physical selves is that we wear we buy different sized clothes right out in the real world in in like the social constructs of it there's plenty of differences between our experiences of of our bodies there's there's this moment where you we were at a um I, i think i hate to say it took this long for me to realize like oh shit there's a real big difference in our lived experiences we were in seattle at a department store and I was shopping for like 45 minutes and we agreed to meet up later because the plus size section was sequestered somewhere. And, um, you came and met me at the cafe and you were so dejected and so Mm. depressed. And you're like, all the plus size clothes are just shoved into this depressing little corner and they're all frumpy. And I I know that sounds so rudimentary because that's such a basic component and probably not even in like the top five list of things that make being fat difficult or the way that fat people are ostracized. And I hate to say it took me that long to realize like, oh my God, we're having to like, we are, we are having to navigate this like really simple process for people like buying clothes. I know is fraught emotionally, but it's never fraught like that emotionally for me. I've never had to experience that. Um, And that's just a small piece. And the rest of this is rooted for you in your entire life, your right. childhood, your upbringing. Right. So I'm excited to learn more about that. Thank you, honey. God. Yeah. I remember that. I mean, that's just like, it's funny because I forget that for people who aren't fat, they're not used to the feeling of like what shopping means and why it's so essential and important for fat people to have clothes that they think are cute, to have 
accessibility to clothing. Um, and I feel like we could do a whole nother episode about that. I would love to bring, you know, Kat on here. Kat Eves is my stylist and her and, um, Jenny Zagrino actually have a podcast called gaudy positive, it's which a, you have to listen to. It's very good. Wonderful. They're so funny. I'm a proud subscriber. I listen to them all the time. <laughs> yeah. Talk to me, mama. Okay. So, um, yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about, um, <laughs> it's like as I'm doing this, my like I'm farting, like, <laughs> talking and farting at the same time. Yeah, I wanted all, to. Folks. I wanted to talk about my journey and sort of what my sort of background was with like loving my body and my parents and um, my the representations of fat people in the media as I was growing up. I have heard that this is sort of a common experience for other fat people. But, um, you know, I the first time I went to Weight Watchers, I was 10 years old. I was 10 years old going to Weight Watchers. And um, I'm assuming that wasn't your idea. I can't remember. Mm. I, I know that it was probably, I started feeling we had, we got a bagel slicer in our house and I was fascinated with that. You could put a bagel into this thing and slice it in half. And I just fantasized about doing that to my stomach about what that would look like if I could just cut it in half, because I knew that my stomach hanging over at any point, at any point, my stomach itself hanging over or having any little fold wasn't desirable. Mm. And that to me, I was shown that because it was everywhere on TV. There was not a single fat person that was loved. Mm. You don't see fat people in romantic parts. Mm. You, You still, you still don't. It's a very, very rare to see it. And now when fat people are in, you know, these in romantic roles, it's, it has to be like a, like an alternate universe in order for it to be like normal. Mm -hmm. And so I just had no examples of that in media. That's like somebody that potentially looked like me um, or had a body like mine or my, my parents would ever be loved. So those messages came from the media. Yes. Not from your family. Well, they were perpetuated by my family. And your and your family, your parents were also fat? My parents are also fat. I don't know if my moms would feel comfortable identifying as fat. I think that's a, it's a, it's a charged word for a lot of people. And we're going to talk about that later. Right. Growing up, I heard my mom, you know, look at old photos of herself and just, and just think, oh God, I... I wish I could just get back down to that weight that, you know, I just looked so beautiful then. And I hate the way I look now. And we got an exercise bike and we put it in the middle of the living room. And that was the only way she was allowed to watch TV was if she had, if she was on the exercise bike. You mean allow, like allow herself? Herself, yeah. So she it would impose a lot of stuff. And, she, and so I think Weight Watchers worked really well for her. And I don't want to spend all this time talking about her because I don't want to make her feel bad about what her journey has been like because... She got it somewhere else, too. She probably got it from her mom who got it from her mom. Well, and you said the most destructive messages didn't come from her. Right. And and you're right. She was saturated in the same media environment that you were. Right. I started realizing that there was something really wrong uh, when I was about 16 or 17. When my mom had been on Weight Watchers for like a year and a half, I think, she'd lost 65 pounds. Wow. And she, I mean, she looked smoking like she looked super hot and she um she was rollerblading I mean by all means in every definition I think at that time she weighed she said she weighed like 170 pounds I think but her goal weight was 165 and 
she had been sitting at 170 for like, for I think a month, two months. And she just started breaking down because she said, I, I was supposed to get to 165 or 150 or whatever the weight was. I don't know. So she was like, I, she was devastated that she couldn't lose that last five pounds and it broke her. And she, I just, I came home and she was like crying on the stairs and she said, I just don't know why my body wants me to be fat. I don't know why my body wants me to be ugly. I felt really confused. Cause I was like, mom, look at yourself. Look what you've accomplished. Like you look incredible. So what if the scale says something, you know, like that's just some sort of arbitrary number. You look what all you've done, you know, like, do you think that it influenced you to hear her talk about that feeling of disconnection from her body too? Because it sounds like she sounds like an agent who's at war with another agent. You know, it sounds yeah. like she's saying, my body won't cooperate with me. I'm so angry with my body for not doing this. Do you yes. Think you learned that? Yes. A hundred percent. I think too, I start, when I started going to Weight Watchers with her, there are these sort of tags, these like quotations, like on the walls or these motivational, yeah, these motivational quotes. There are a couple that stuck in my mind and I still think about them. I'm still working on unlearning some of these quotes. And one of them was nothing tastes as good as thin feels. And just, huh. and one of them was thinking thin, thinking thin, thinking thin, just Jesus. think thin, you know, what, what, do, um, what does that mean? I don't know, but I, I will catch myself sometimes saying that in my head and I'm like, whoa. And like while making decisions about food or just throughout um, the day? You know what? When it pops in my head is when I'm like getting on an airplane and I'm like squeezing in between. I'm like thinking thin, thinking thin. <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know if that's helpful. <laughs> but um, going to Weight Watchers that early was really harmful. And I don't think my mom knew how harmful it was. And I don't think, you know, like both of my parents giving me slim fast when I was like nine years old was like, going to be helpful. I, my mom enrolled me in, um, like, uh, the YMCA, like soccer. And it wasn't because I wanted to do soccer. It was because they wanted me to lose weight. I had been crying about losing weight. So I was like, yes, this will be a good activity for me to lose weight. My sole focus was on losing weight from as early as I can remember. So you, that you were invested in this process too. It wasn't just Very your parents much. pushing you to do it. You, you thought that's what I need to do to be happy. Yes. But I mean, that kind of grew into something else. It kind of grew into a, an issue. Um, did she echo it? Would she tell you that you needed to lose weight? No, my mom never did. Wow. There was, there was some messaging that was harmful and some messaging that I think was just identical and congruent to the messaging of that time. Right. You know, and my mom, yeah, my mom, had did Weight Watchers and Atkins and all of it. And so by proxy, I had done all of it too. But I remember uh, I must've been 12 or 13 and I was, we were watching an award show and I, and yeah, I was watching somebody on TV and I said, Oh, I want to be, I want to be on, I want to be on stage. I can't wait to be singing like that. I want to sing like that someday on, on the Grammys or something. And, and my stepmom said, uh, she just said really frankly, she's like, nobody that looks like you is ever on a stage like that. If you want to be on a stage like that, you have to be thin. I'm sorry. There are just not people like us on stages like that. So if that's what you want, you have to start thinking about about start losing thinking, weight. Start thinking thin. You have to start thinking thin, start losing weight. And so that became my entire fixation. And if I liked a boy at that time, 
and a boy likes me back, I would, in my mind the entire time, I would think that boy likes me in spite of my fatness, in, this, in spite of me being fat. If a boy liked me, I was like, this, he, you know, he likes me. Even if I'm fat, that's amazing. Mm-hmm. Like, I have to start doing other things to counter you know, <laughs> to counter my fatness. So you thought, oh, they're seeing my inner beauty and how, how gallant of them to like me anyway. Like exactly. See past the fatness and see to the real me. Right. It would have just been revolutionary to have somebody talk to me when I was 10 or 11 and say, your body's perfectly okay. There's nothing wrong with your body. That would have been so radical for me. I just didn't have that kind of messaging because all I saw were fat people feeling like they were failing all around me. Right. As I, as I got older and I started going on my own journey of self-hatred and, um, you know, kind of at war with, with who I was within the context of romantic relationships. As I got older, I only knew of two ways that that it was either that they fetishized fat bodies or that they liked me despite my size. Did you feel like dating as a fat person got easier for you after you came out? I thought I thought that it would because I felt like, oh, the queer community, like it's radical. Like there's like people just see beauty differently. They see everything's just sort of different. Like it was even harder to date. Really? Yeah. As a fat person, especially like as a fat femme, because I, yeah, I just assumed that people would be more, I think I thought, yeah, I thought naively that the queer community would be so receptive to my body. Yeah. I felt the same, if not more unlikable because the number of possible partners drastically shifted. Yeah. And when I would go into queer spaces or lesbian spaces, I felt like people were looking for this kind of, I don't know. I think like heroin chic was very like popular around this time. I don't know if that's still a thing. That was also a time when the like manic pixie dream girl kind of image was really in. Exactly. It was like, it was okay for you to be broken and flawed, Mm -hmm. but they were still, you still had to be thin. were hot thin women. Yes. And can you imagine manic pixie dream girls, a fat person? Like there's no way that doesn't, that doesn't doesn't exist. Well, and that's what I I so desperately wanted to be manic pixie dream girl. God, please let me have, let me be in that trope. Let me into that club. I could never, I was never allowed to be in that club. One of the obsessions that I talk about actually from our last episode is the bachelor franchise. And one of the things I love about studying the bachelor franchise is this sort of performative self-confidence. It's a kind of self-confidence that's flimsy that kind of, you know, falls apart when actually like it's, it's, it's studied. I think the reason that that show resonates with, with me so much is because I felt like that in times of my life where I've been like, I would Google what what makes boys like you? The thing you always hear when you're growing up is like, oh, boys, you know, they just like confidence. They just like a girl who's confident. So I was like, great, I will be confident. The The impetus for being confident wasn't actual confidence. It was just so someone would like me. Someone would love me. Um, we should say we're recording this in the living room and our dog has this chew toy that she's obsessed with. So if there's like these little peaks of sound coming through, it's a chewy ball. And it's way too adorable to make her stop. We're not going to make her stop. She's so fucking cute. 
Um, so I had this sort of performative self-confidence that kind of almost like materialized out of thin air because I wanted someone to like me. So it was like, I'm going to, I'm going to own my body, but inside I'm like, I hate everything about me and, uh, I'm going to diet until I'm dead and I'm going to diet until I'm a size six or this sort of arbitrary, you know, weight that I need to achieve. I think when we talk about body image, a lot of the time we separate it from the brain. We separate it from our own, uh, the, uh, the emotional end of it of, oh, I just hate my body, but I love everything about myself. For me, that was never the case. It was like, I hate my body. And I also hate all of these other things about me. I wish I could change this stuff. And instead of making any real changes and making any real steps to accepting myself or loving myself or, positive changes toward whatever those goals were, I would just sit in the, in the shame of it. I would sit in the shame and just like, I think, I think that's when my, my body journey started is when I was about 19 or 20, when I was at my lowest, lowest end. It was, I mean, cause that was around the time that I attempted suicide all like with my bipolar stuff was being queer with being queer in the church with being fat. Like it all kind of came to a head. I woke up and I just didn't want to live anymore. And I hated, I hated myself. And then it occurred to me that I have created my own paradise. Like I've created my, this own reality for myself. Wow with whatever situations I'm putting myself in or the way that I'm allowing my thought processes to, um, to form and to continue and to, and to, you know, rut. Um, and so that's sort of when I started peeling back the layers and, and wondering how I got to this place and how I can start feeling better. That is, I think, a Herculean task for anybody, but for a 19 to 20 year old, that's insane. And the you talked about the the saturation of messages in our culture that encourage you to hate your body. Mm-hmm. Just last night, you and I were watching Judge Judy, and for some reason, not fast forwarding through the commercials, <laughs> and there was an ad for this diabetes medication that said, "And most people who started taking this medication have lost twelve pounds." And it was showed a series of people celebrating in the ad. And then it said, however, this medication does not prevent hypertension, high blood pressure, heart issues, diabetes. Right. (laughs) But um, I think that's it's an environment that's rife for someone to feel like to 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 whatever detriment it might be in your body, in your life, in the way that you think about yourself. Like you just need to achieve this particular goal. Right. Of form fitting your body into what people find find desirable and then sure, you might be miserable, but all of that is secondary. Like, like the, it's worth it. That's collateral right. damage. It's, right. a, it's okay if your mental health is in the shitter. Um, if you're thin and hot and conventionally attractive, yeah. then who cares, right? So yeah. for you as a 19 to 20 year old to scrutinize that and a 19 to 20 year old, as we talked about, in an environment with no positive role models in this regard. Right. My favorite poet, Tara Hardy, Um, she has a poem where she talks about, um, she talks about her eating disorder and she talks about, um, her mother talking to her and she, and there's one, one, one of the lines of the poem, she says, she's talking as her mother and her mother says in this family, we're thin and, and being thin means having power. Oh, wow. And 
And I think about that a lot of like thinness. There's a, there's a privilege to being thin that people don't realize. Right. And I think at that time and, you know, up until maybe six years ago, I had really believed that, um, people that were fat and were happy were lying. Really? That anybody that said that they were comfortable and okay with their body and they were a fat person, they were lying. What would, what would, uh, what would be their motivation for lying? Oh, to make themselves feel better because they, because they were actually pathetic sacks of shit. Like I really, I had so much like fat phobia, like internalized that I had not really examined that I was just so that I just believed as my own gospel. Well, I still hear things like that when um, I hear, you know, when fat women will celebrate their bodies online or talk about their confidence online. Of course, I know that we're talking about the comments being the cesspool of, you know, human communication, (laughs) but there's a sense of people saying like, oh yeah, whatever you have to tell yourself to sleep at night, but you know, deep down you're not happy. That's, there's no way. There's no way that a fat person could be like actually happy with themselves. Incompatible. Yes. And we talked in the last episode about there's, there's a message about being bipolar is incongruent that renders it impossible to be high functioning or to be happy. Right. And I think being fat is seen as the, as the same type of right. obstacle to true, real happiness yes. and to real physical health, which, you know, I'm sure we'll talk, talk about. Later. Yes. But, so you had that, you, you, you started your journey toward body love and body acceptance age 19, 20. What yes. prompted that? Um, yeah, I think, I think just, just getting to the place where I felt like I was a prisoner in my own mind and realizing like, I don't know what epiphany I sort of had. Actually, it kind of came from when I started studying shame, when I started studying my own shame and where it was coming from. And I had, I talk about this sometimes at my shows and this is actually maybe a great story to parallel a lot of what we what we talk about in terms of letting go of shame. If you're familiar with my work, oftentimes I'll talk about trauma and I'll talk about the effects that trauma has had on my brain and different coping mechanisms that my body and brain have put into place. One of those things is that I um, really absent-minded. I forget a lot of things. I must have, I've gone through like a hundred pairs of sunglasses in my life. And I just kind of accepted at this point that I'm going to forget where things are. I'm going to forget my keys. I'm going to forget. I can't get too attached to material things. So I just don't. I will be the keeper of your things. Yeah. (laughs) Thank you, honey. Mm -hmm. I have an extra driver's license of yours I carry around in my wallet. She does. <laughs> That's probably illegal, but. No, it's really helpful. So similarly, when I was, so this was when, about, when I was about 19, I had a car and I would park at school. So I, I went to college in Seattle. I went to Cornish and I would park around the school. I would regularly lock my keys in my car and Every time I would lock my keys in my car, I'd have to call AAA. They'd come, they'd get my keys out. It would take about an hour. My, I was using my mom's AAA card. So she, she had five calls. In one month, I had used up four of those calls just from my keys in my car, locking the wow. keys in the car. So then by the fifth one, my mom said, okay, well, that's it. Like that's, you know, you're going to have to figure out something else because it starts costing, it's a hundred dollars to get your keys out of your car. And so I, th- I was like, okay, I need to, I need to learn a lesson. I need to make sure that I figure this out because functioning adults don't lock their keys in their car five times a month. I'm not going to, um, put, 
you know, things into action to make this easier on myself. I'm just going to fucking learn how to do this. And to you, that meant (laughs) my approach to stop, stop locking my keys in my car was to, um, just stop doing it. Okay. And, uh, you can imagine how well that worked out. Um, about a week later, I locked the keys in the car and I didn't have enough money to pay to get the keys out of the car. So I opened up a credit card specifically for a locksmith to get the keys out of my car. And I maxed that credit card out. Rather than getting a duplicate key made, I continued to put myself into debt, into debt specifically because I said, no, I'm going to learn how to do this. You're a functioning person. You have to learn how to not lock your keys in the car. So it was like punishing yourself. I was punishing myself over and over again. Mm. And that luckily that car didn't have like too much of a limit. It was about $700, but that's $700 for a college kid. So it was around this time that I said, I hate my body. I hate my brain. I hate my trauma. I hate my bipolar disorder. I hate my sexuality. I hate the fact that I'm never going to have kids. I hate like all of these things. Just I hated everything about myself. I decided one day I was going to wake up and try, try something else because everything up to that point had led me to complete self-hatred. So you just decided I'm going to try something else. I'm going to try love. Yeah. I'm going to try being radically kind to myself. Wow. And around this time is when my friend had a magnet on her fridge and it said, I I saw it for the first time. It blew my mind. It just said riots, not diets. And it was like all of these things were exploding my mind in a way. I just. What did that mean to you? Riots, not diets. I could not fathom a world in which a fat person was not trying to be thin. I could not fathom someone not hating their body or dieting. Like if you're a fat person, you diet. And so with this new concept of what was possible, I made I made three copies, three copies of my car keys. I gave one to my roommate. I hid one at school. I don't know where it is. It's I I don't remember where I put it. It's probably somewhere still at Cornish. And I put a second one in my purse. So I had one around my key ring and I had one in my purse. I am not fucking kidding you. I have not locked my keys in the car since then. Hell yes. It was like a switch turned on where it was like, oh, I don't have to punish myself anymore. And then all of the sudden, all of these things came to me. Uh All of this joy came to me and all of this self-acceptance and love and understanding that there was a different way to exist. And I think that coincided with my journey of self-love, the journey of loving my body and accepting myself exactly as I was. There's a woman named Sandra Bartke, who I'm a huge fan of. She wrote this article that I taught when um, when I was a graduate student and I taught a few sections of an introduction to gender studies class. She wrote this article called Foucault, Femininity and the Modernization of Patriarchal Power. Foucault has this theory of the panopticon. And of course, all of Foucault's critical work was about how power works, how mechanisms of power are enacted in the world. Mm-hmm. And he made this comparison between prison design, which featured this big round room with a guard stand in the middle, an elevated guard stand in the middle. And Foucault argued that the way that that worked, the way the panopticon worked 
is that you would sometimes have a guard in that tower and sometimes not. But eventually it wouldn't matter because the prisoners would behave as if they were always being watched, would Mm. behave as if they were always being monitored. And that would lead them to self-policing. Bartke argues that enforcing beauty standards on women works exactly the same way. Right. That women are policed by and, and that their behavior is restricted by these expectations of particular ways that they have to be or exist or look in public. So she would say even down to something like wearing high heels that mm-hmm. restricts your movement. It makes right. it harder for you to run. Right. Um, little girls who have to wear skirts, they have to constantly pull at them and fuss over them and worry about them. So they can't move with the same agility and freedom that little boys do. Um, she said, if women are having to worry, as you said about, you know, if you're a fat person, the only thing that needs to be on your mind, your only goal needs to be losing weight. She would say that's a mechanism for you to be so distracted and so unable to find a comfortable way of being in the world that you will never meaningfully participate in politics. So that's what, when I hear you say riots, not diets, and you have that sticker on your computer, I know still, which I love. It's on a little donut and it says riots, not diets. (laughs) That's what I think. If you're dieting, you don't have the mental capacity to riot. Yeah. If that's all you're thinking about, if what you're thinking about is, do I look okay in the sweater or whatever it is? You're not going to engage. You're not going to be a part of the revolution if you're so worried about that. Right. And she argues that's intentionally inflicted by a patriarchal society that wants to limit the civic participation of women. Right. I think what you were doing as far as like reprogramming yourself in that way is really powerful. Mm -hmm. I think it's a radical and if I'm to believe Barkey, which I do, a radical feminist act. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I hadn't considered it that way. But I also, I think what's so frustrating is that when I had the mindset of the self-policing, when I had the mindset of, fuck, I'm so fat or I will never be loved like this. Nobody likes a fat person. I have to be thin. The, the consumpt, how it consumed my mind. I didn't feel like it was my fault. I knew that like this was from something else. Right. That, I, that it, it was because of programming. But I think it's important that people know that it's not their fault. Yeah. That, 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 um, that, that those thought patterns and the brain train in your head making those neural pathways, that's not your fault. It doesn't right. come from you. We're born perfect. Right. Though that messaging comes from, from somewhere else. Right. There's a billion, trillion dollar industry that benefits from insecurity that benefits from women thinking that they're not good enough or or our works in progress. And women who are born perfect when they're little girls are exposed to systematic conditioning through school, through their consumption of media that encourages them to, to to internalize those insecurities and to be more hobbled by them than their, than their male counterparts. I wish I could remember the name of this scholar. Do I come intellectualizing everything? Yes. I don't have any real experience with it. There was a scholar who did a study of the behavior of teachers toward preschool girls and noticed things like teachers would chide and silence young girls individually. So say, Mary, be quiet, sit down, stop talking but would address groups of boys um, and notice that even at that young age, girls started engaging in like gossip like behavior because Mm -hmm. they had to be more aware of needing to be quiet. Mm -hmm. So I think you're right. And I I don't think awareness of that makes it go away. Right. So thinking critically about messages that you get from the media or messages that you're getting from these other sources 
it sounds like you knew, you knew this is all coming from somewhere, but yeah. that didn't make it vanish radically because the programming is so deep. Right. Is that, is that accurate? Yes. And there were times where I would feel like I got ahead of it. I would see something and it would make me seize up. Like, like for example, even this far along on my sort of journey to like love my body exactly as I am. I would say about three or four years ago, I stumbled on this blog and it was the Addy Positivity blog, like as in adipose tissue, as in fat. It was just, um, it was fat women with their partners in not necessarily, it wasn't like pornographic, but it was definitely like not safe for work. These sexy, like beautiful black and white images of women with roles. It was specifically focused on stomach rolls and back rolls and thigh rolls. And I felt nauseous. I cried. I cried because I was jealous. I was uncomfortable. I was envious of their joy. And I thought, how dare they? How dare they be so happy with their roles? Yeah, that programming is still there of like, you can't possibly love that. You can't possibly love me. That's how, and I still, I'm, it's, I've been on this journey for 10 years and I still, I still have to like realize that this programming is so deep that I can't possibly believe that someone like you would want to be with somebody like me. Mm that anybody that's with a fat person just has something wrong with their brains. I'm still working through that on a surface level. Of course, I would never say this. Right. Like if I was in, you know, if I was in some sort of interview where I'd be like, no, of course, fuck everybody. Like, right. Like fat people rule. Fat is radical. Fat is the most beautiful thing on, on earth, you know, like, and I want to get there, but the programming is so fucking deep. I want it to be lasting. I yeah. want the change that I'm experiencing to be lasting. Yeah. Um, and I was really grateful for that night because it alerted me to this understanding that I didn't have before right. where I was like, why am I feeling so uncomfortable yeah. with fat people in these romantic positions yeah. or situations? That's why I started reading Jess Baker. I started reading Lindy West and Denise Jolly and Sonia yeah. Renee Taylor and all of these people that um, talk about this experience. And uh, Lindy West in her book, so I, I'm kind of going forward now, but in her book, she says, um, if you want to start feeling better about fat people or you want to be an ally, start following fat people on your social media accounts. Right. Start forcing yourself to see it and normalize it yeah. to where fat people can be romantic and have sex and like, yeah. and see them in, see them the way that you see, you know, straight size people. Yeah. You're right that the self-loathing. I mean, I've told you before, I, I think back in horror, it was only three or four years ago that I was getting onto a plane and glanced into the cockpit as the plane was boarding and saw that both of the pilots were women. Oh shit. And I didn't feel safe. Wow. And I, and I, I thought as like a knee jerk reaction, God, I wish there were a man in that cockpit. I'd feel so much safer. And that prompted so much interrogating about wow, how good. deeply programmed misogyny is. Right. Um, so I, I know that's a flimsy analogy, but, you know, th th that kind of programming, like you said, 
is a such a deep and insidious and destructive right. force. And right. it's prompted, it sounds like, by something really beautiful and that intellectually you knew was beautiful. Totally. But something deeper, it there's some tripwire deeper in your experience right. that caught that. Where yeah. you're like, wait a minute, fat people don't deserve intimacy. You can't have intimacy and be happy like yeah, that. No yeah. way. Well, I think what's interesting is that for people like you and, and me, like we're we're kind of radical people. Like we, like the way we talk and the way we move through the world is, is kind of radical. And so for us to have like kind of recently had those experiences where we've both been like, Oh shit. Like this programming is fucking deep Yeah, to, to want to interrogate that. I just wonder how many people that aren't or don't come from from where we come from or don't live this sort of <laughs> radical queer lifestyle <laughs> this alternative lifestyle right. uh-huh. but how yeah how it must be so difficult when you are in a homogenous community of like let's say just like very white christian you know like mommy drinks wine now sort of like this this live laugh love family mm-hmm. gay sex um, <laughs> that's what we need please come into our dungeon and let us eat your brain <laughs> that's what we call in the biz a callback <laughs> and um and i would say like up until five years ago i didn't let any any sexual romantic partner touch my stomach what changed that? My relationship with my body. Yeah? Yeah. I started seeing myself differently. Okay, how can we take these applications or these these concepts of body positivity and tools and how can we actually apply them into our lives? Because I feel like as fat people or as people like struggling to like love ourselves, you hear these concepts a lot. Yeah. And and I think there might be some frustration for for folks. I I absolutely felt frustrated because all I heard was this concept that I was supposed to love myself and nobody gave me any fucking tools how to do it. Mm-hmm. They just said that I should. I don't know how I'm supposed to learn how to love myself when everything around me is telling me that I have absolutely no value. Right. So give me some fucking tools. This is the lean in effect. Yeah. Yes, I'm going to be the person on the podcast to shit on Cheryl Sandberg. This idea of like, just put yourself out there. Just have some confidence and assert yourself. And that's how you move ahead in the corporate world. It's like, how do I do that? Yeah. How do I actually do that in a yeah. system that is actually built to stop me from doing that? Right. Constructed to prevent that. A hundred percent. And then the idea is if you don't accomplish that, there's something wrong with you. Right. Or you're not trying hard enough. Right. You're not praying hard enough to not be gay. I think your work, I think... I know that you don't like to dip intellectually into cynicism or nihilism, Mm -hmm. but this is where I love Barbara Ehrenreich wrote this book a few years ago about her experience as a breast cancer survivor called Brightsided. Mm -hmm. She's a woman who wrote Nickel and Dime. She's a sociologist, critic, writer. She's got a great Twitter account too. Some problematic tweets and opinions. I do not stand for all of them, but in Brightsided, she talks about what she calls the tyranny of cheerfulness. Right. And um, she talks about how when she had had breast cancer, um, she heard all this language about um, people who were survivors and you just have to keep up the fight and stay strong. And she said, I don't think people think about the implications of that language. That means that if, if there are people who have won the fight against breast cancer, that means that people who have died, like maybe they just didn't try hard enough. Maybe they didn't fight hard enough. Maybe they 
lacked strength or they weren't positive enough. Or they or gave they, up. Or they gave up. Anybody right. that dies from breast cancer gave up. Right. Oh, right. That's terrible. Yeah. And I think, um, I, I think that when, when I see those messages, like just love yourself, just no matter what, just, just love who you are. Embrace everything about yourself, all your flaws. You're perfect. You're loved. You're cared for. But like you said, there's no blueprint for doing that. Mm-mm. It's a conclusion in search of an argument. Right. And that's kind of what is like, honestly, like sparking my interest in I'm, I'm working on a new book and the book is, I, I want to call it the body positivity handbook. It's going to be I rad. want something that has like offers a practical application of these concepts where of course we all know that like in order to like thrive in this world and thrive in our lives, we have to love ourselves and accept ourselves, but how do you practically do it? Um, and so I wanted to just offer a few nuggets of help that has sent me on this incredible journey to where I'm like, Oh, I'm not consumed by diet culture anymore. Like I, I rarely think about like, diet culture. I don't think about thinness. I don't think about it anymore. I have been over the past year and a half really inspired by your relationship with food and with movement and with your body. Um, because I see the love and care and deliberateness and the enthusiasm with which you love to prepare food and think about how different nutrients are going to make you feel. I, I don't, I don't see you guilting yourself or feeling like eating particular things or indulgences. I just see you enjoying the, enjoying the process of nourishing your body and of of figuring out what feels good for your body and what Mm. doesn't and, um, what, what type of movement feels good for your body. And I see you thinking about what you can do to make your body feel good and to be good to your body so that you can go out into the world and do this meaningful work. Right. Um, and that's really inspired me to start thinking about food the same way. Baby, that's so sweet. I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. I think the question rather than how do I, how will this help me lose weight? The question is how will this help me feel good? Yeah. There are some of these, some of those things, especially my relationship with food that has really shifted instead of the consumption of, um, diet culture and, and thin spo and like, uh, an obsession about what, how your thighs should look or what your stomach should look like. I honestly believe that the best way to begin on a, on a, journey to love your body does truly begin with throwing your scale away. We have to let go of the concept that your weight is an indicator of health. Mm. And I think that this is a controversial opinion. I don't know that a lot of people would agree with me. Mm. I know that this opinion is radical. We have to let go of the idea that you can tell how healthy somebody is just by looking at them. Right. That's just not true. Yeah. I promise you I'm fucking strong. You wouldn't know that just by looking at me. I think a lot of people look at me and they think that I'm like the person that, you know, just like consumes a bunch of junk food and like doesn't give a shit about my body because that's what we're told that fat people do, that that's what, that's what fat people do is they're lazy. They just fart everywhere and they just eat shit and they don't care about their bodies. The topic of this is difficult because the implication of saying that 
well, hey, wait a minute, I'm really strong and my body has value outside of of your perception um, also is under the umbrella of that a body has to be healthy in order to be um, morally good. Yeah. yeah, Like that that's the only way that bodies have value is if they're um, healthy. What about people in wheelchairs? What about people with like that are on medications that, you know, make them fat? What about people that just literally don't give a shit? Do we like, do they have any less of a right to exist and to not be hated? Right. Do they have any, like any less of a, um, a, a right to have nice clothes or, or be treated fairly or have seats that, yeah, that, that fit them. This reminds me of like the way that we police people who live in poverty and like what mm. they're allowed to spend their food stamps. Yeah. On. Like what the, I think there's this idea that like, you're not allowed to have pleasure. I think the best way to frame this is that like, this is my experience. This is only my experience. I can't speak for all the fat people. Yeah. I don't believe it's a moral imperative to be healthy as Lindy West would say. I just know that for me, it's important to feel good. Right. And I think that a lot of people that are so focused on wanting to be thin just want to feel good. Right. Maybe that's the best way to frame my experience and to the experience of somebody that wants to learn how to take care of their body. Right. In a way that isn't centered around shame. I think about what it means to take care of your body. And to take care of yourself and what that means for me individually and for other people. And I keep coming back to the concept that it's different for everybody. Yeah. That there is no real right way to do something. But I would say that there are some foundations of framing. Right. And some foundations of understanding our bodies and our relationship to our bodies and the way the world views us. So getting rid of your scale, but also working on not assigning aesthetic value to your size or your weight. And in doing that, you have to begin viewing other people that way. Yeah. Not assigning aesthetic value, whether somebody's body is good or bad. All bodies just sort of exist at the same time. What's the best for you might not be the same for somebody else. Right. But I would also investigate what is your, what's your motivation or intention behind going to the gym twice a day? Um, what's your motivation or intention for, um, only eating salads or whatever, whatever it is, what is this intention? Yeah. If the intention is purely for weight loss, I would, I would investigate that. Where does that come from? Why do you feel like that needs to happen? Why do you feel like that that's, that's imperative for you to be happy? Hopefully we can all as a society accept and understand and move forward that BMI is an outdated construct, Mm -hmm. that it's not helpful, that it won't help you, that it won't help me, that that is a like paramount. Mm -hmm. It is, it is wrong. And this is the body mass index that is just measures the relationship between your height and your weight. It's just saying, exactly. It's just, it's just saying whether somebody looks fat Mm -hmm. or doesn't look fat. And that's how we calculate health. And And the old trope is that like by that metric, you know, uh, bodybuilders are morbidly obese. Yes. Right. Okay. (laughs) So you use the word fat to, describe yourself Mm -hmm. and to describe other 
people. Did you always identify as a fat person? I'm talking about just that adjective, using mm. that adjective. Mm. Did you always use that adjective to describe yourself? No. And I would say that using um, fat as a self-descriptor didn't really come into play for me until about, I don't know, like four, four or five years ago. So around the same time that you became comfortable with people touching your stomach. Yeah. And I think it was also around like becoming a public figure and realizing that, oh, wow, I, like it's not just me on a stage anymore. It's me representing like queer people and bipolar people and fat people mm. and just thinking about the communities I represent. And, and I wanted to be more mindful about how, what language I used. Um, and I noticed a lot of my friends were using the F word. <laughs> we're saying fat and calling themselves fat. And I thought, oh, I'm really uncomfortable with that. I used curvy. I used thick. I used voluptuous. God fucking voluptuous is a <laughs> descriptor, but I used that. I used, I used big girl a lot. I'm a big girl. I still use that one sometimes too, but I think I real I had a real aversion to fat because I, it's so loaded. Like that is it. That's an insult. That's what people insult you with. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. If you, you know, you ask somebody and like, Hey, do I look fat in this? And, yeah. and, and, and you know, you're supposed to say, no, you don't look fat yeah. in that. Yeah. Um, and now if I say that, I hope someone goes, yeah, you look really fucking fat. And I'll be like, thank you so much. Like, <laughs> right. <laughs> um, as I use it now and when I started using it, it felt radical. And I think part of the reason I both wanted and didn't want to use the word was because I both wanted and didn't want to make people uncomfortable. Right. I realized that my existence was disruptive for some people, yeah. especially to be like, you know what? Actually, when I did the She Keeps Me Warm music video, someone asked me early on in an interview about it and they said, were you worried about the backlash you were going to get for having like, you know, having it be a romantic scene with a, you know, with another, you know, another woman. And, and I said, oh, I'm not worried about that. They're going to be pissed off because I'm fat. Shit. And sure enough, like that was all, all of the comments, any sort of negative response to the music video or to any of my music videos has been about my size. Shit. And that has been the most difficult, like navigating that within the industry has been more difficult, I think, than anything else. Yeah. But I think, I think saying that I'm fat is a reclamation of the word and being able to just say, yes, fat is just adipose tissue. Like it's just in reference to the actual cells themselves. They're fat cells. I have, I, I am, I am there. There's, I'm not thin. I am fat. I am okay with it. Right. Like, it doesn't mean that I think less of myself. It doesn't mean that I don't think I'm like the f hottest fucking person on earth. It doesn't mean that I like don't feel cute or don't feel sweet or I'm, or I'm self-deprecating when right. I say that I'm fat. I say that I'm fat because it's true. Yeah. And the sooner that we can start letting go of the shame that sits within the word fat, mm -hmm. the sooner we can just use it as a, as a descriptor again, yeah. you know? I think there are, history is rife with examples of terms like that being reclaimed by the communities mm -hmm. that they're used to describe and that they're used to marginalize, right? And yeah. like language is so powerful. And how do you feel about straight sized people using it? I can't decide. I don't know. I think... Cause you use it, you use it when you're talking about me or with other, about other people. And that makes me comfortable because it makes me feel like you see me 
the way I want to be seen and you see the community and the community I'm a part of, like the way that I, I hope you see them. I don't I don't know. I don't know for everybody, for everybody. I can't speak for everybody else, but I just, I know for me and in the context of our relationship, it feels it's comforting to right. me. Well, it's kind of like um, when, I mean, I identify as queer mm-hmm. when people that I'm close to people that I'm really comfortable with who are not queer use it, you know, if my family members or friends who are not queer, you know, describe me as being queer, it feels great. Or say other people are queer. I'm like, oh, you get it. Yeah. You understand the language. You understand the parlance. You get, you get it. You understand the role of that word in our community. But when people say it with the, with the little (laughs) bit of mustard on it, ooh, (laughs) yeah, it doesn't sound good. No, it feels bad. I mean, even if they are, even if it's just a little bit of mustard, you yeah. know, even if it's just like a little bit of stank on it, it yeah. still just doesn't quite sit the right way. Totally. Yeah. I think, I think when straight sized people use the word fat, it's helpful to know that they've have a little bit of education <sighs> with it. Do you think it's possible for a fat person to love their body and accept their body and also try to lose weight? No. No, no, I don't think it's possible. That was a very fast, definitive no. Because I think I and I would say that that's also controversial. I don't think people would agree with me. I think there are plenty of fat people that say, I love myself. I love myself. That's why I'm trying to lose weight. So fuck you, Mary Lambert. And I'd be like, that's okay. I see where you're at in your journey, but that's not self-love. I'm sorry. Okay, That's not body love. Explain it. Let's imagine we've got 12 members of the jury here. Great. Yes. Justify Oh, fuck yeah. Let me Let me in. I'm Jimmy Stewart. This is Mr. Smith goes to Washington. I'm about to pull a fucking filibuster of body positivity. (laughs) Yeah, baby. (laughs) Before you start, can I just say? Yeah. I've been thinking about for the past three or four minutes. You used the word voluptuous and you said you hated it. Huh. I think voluptuous only works if you're like a 1940s like radio broadcaster, <laughs> like the same guy who announced the the crashing of the Hindenburg. You know, <laughs> oh, she was a voluptuous gal. Yeah, she had some nice gams, lots of curves. That's so very voluptuous. And she brought me a sandwich, and it was a really nice sandwich, so quite tasty, a voluptuous and sandwich. And that's all. In fact, that's the best thing about voluptuous women. They sure do know how to make a sandwich. Am I right? Take my wife, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Mm. <laughs> Counselor Lambert? Yes. Proceed. Make your case. Okay. This is what I would say. So I I think about this a lot because is it possible to accept my body and love my body and want to lose weight? And I think that the answer is no. And the reason for that is because there's an implication of needing to lose weight. So not the implication isn't to be healthy not to, um, achieve a milestone or, to feel um, good. To, yeah, it is, it is, it is like an arbitrary number on a scale. And when the arbitrary number on the scale shows up, I know to me, that's a flag that someone doesn't get it yet. What if I say, I love my body. I love it so much. I want to take care of it. I love it so much that when I run, I'm uncomfortable because there's too much jiggling and it's painful for me or whatever it is. So I just want to lose a few pounds, but I do love my body. I think you're using the wrong barometer. Then your barometer shouldn't be about losing weight. The barometer should be 
about what your ability is. So, so a lot of this is just the way people are just are framing their goals. It's about semantics. Uh, it's a hundred percent about language yeah. and semantics and about how you frame it. Yeah. But as we've learned throughout history, all of that shit is fucking important. Oh, the honey. language around it is so important. You are preaching to the choir and preach on. Language dictates the way that we understand the world. All the world is stories. And if the story that people are hearing is, I want to lose weight, that taps into an existing discourse about losing weight being good and being thin being better. Yes. And this is why it blows my fucking mind how many people in our lives around you, knowing their audience will launch into talking about in front of us as if it's nothing. Oh, I'm just trying to lose a few pounds. Like, I just, I feel like I've really gained weight lately. I've gotten really fat. You know, I'm just, oh, look how good I look. I've, I've lost 30 pounds since you lost, last saw me. And the way that you deal with that, I've noticed is you'll say, how do you feel? Yeah. You don't celebrate it. You just, you cut, you're slow and methodical with your reaction. You nod and you say, and how do you feel? Are you happy? Yeah. And I think that's really interesting. Why do you ask them that? Because the barometer should never be about an arbitrary size. The barometer should be about how you feel. Because if you lose weight and the automatic response you get across the board is congratulations, good job, then when somebody gains weight for any reason at all, is going to be the opposite reaction. Yep. And I think that's where we start shaming weight gain. We start shaming people that are fat for any reason at all. It doesn't matter why they're fat. That's where the shame sits in. That's right. when it that's why it happens. Right. So I'm not going to reward people in my life for losing 15 pounds when I don't know how they're feeling. I don't know what their impetus was for that. It's, it, to me, it seems like such a personal journey. I wish that we, I wish that we discussed specifically weight loss the way we discuss religion and politics. Mm. That it is, it's personal matter. Mm, right. And I would say, so when someone asks me, well, what about, medically necessary weight loss. I believe in that. I believe in medically necessary weight loss that a doctor tells you to do with a very specific regimen that has nothing to do with an aesthetic woman in a bikini on the cover of a book that has nothing to do with aesthetic beauty, that it just has to do with a conversation between you and your doctor to achieve some sort of goal of you being able to tie your shoes or going up and down stairs or having a baby or whatever that looks like for mm -hmm. you. But that is a private conversation between you and your doctor in a private understanding with you and your body. When that shooting happened at that church, at that black church in South Carolina, we had the public conversation again about taking down Confederate statues. You might feel like this is really far no. away from where we started. Um, but that debate started again. Should we leave up statues of Confederate generals? Should we keep the Confederate flag waving, you know, this conversation? A lot of the discourse around it with the public was, well, that's history. Those statues are part of history. That stuff happened. And my response was, I'm sure I'm not the only person who thought this, but at least to my students, I said, 
Right. But we agree socially as a culture, it means something when you put a statue of someone up in public. There's a reason that we don't have statues of the 19 9-11 hijackers in New York City is because there is a particular rhetorical function associated with putting a statue of someone up. It's to honor them. It's to elevate them. That's why we take the statues down. Yeah. Similarly, it's not, this is way far afield, but we'll just pretend like it's not. When you celebrate weight loss, you are assigning a particular value to it. Yes. You are celebrating it. If you're celebrating it, you are telling people around you that is a good thing to want to pursue if somebody says, don't I look so good? I've lost 30 pounds. To me, that taps directly into this discursive line of it is better to lose weight than not to lose weight. Yes. It puts you in a position as a fat person in the room that I'm never comfortable with. Yeah, I, I just I don't understand why someone would do that. Yeah. And especially someone who so publicly espouses body acceptance. It's hard for me to understand why people don't experience more discomfort with talking about that in public, but it's just become so acceptable. Yes. But the, the destructiveness that that can cause and the, the impact that that can have on young women and on young men who are just learning how to see their bodies in the world. Yes. It is so, I mean, I'm so glad you've said that. I think that that's, that's why we have to be more thoughtful and careful with our language and how we frame our journey with our bodies because we don't know who's listening. And in this new technology world of social media and everybody seeing everything, those things that you plant and you put into the world, someone else is going to hear them. Yeah. And it might sit in their heads for a really long time and craft their understanding of the world. Like think thin. Like think thin. I still think about that fucking stupid quote from Weight Watchers. I have no idea what it would look like if I grew up at this time and what it would look like if I saw one thing on Instagram or I saw, you know, one, one TV show. I I just, I don't know. I don't know what it's like for kids that are growing up now. From my experience, we have to dismantle this whole fucking system. So I have a ton of friends that are on, they're on there. They really believe that the weight loss journey is the right one for them. And they are very public about it. And they believe in holding themselves publicly accountable and documenting their journey to this weight loss. And I don't think that they like my perspective of saying that this is, a, I'm sorry, your promotion of this is harmful. It's harmful to fat bodies. Mm-hmm. And it's, I think that I'm probably annoying. Yeah. I, I can see that I'm annoying because I am rejecting everything that they've been told sure. is, is what is, is what they're looking for. They're looking for the validation. Yeah. I don't want to, you don't get that validation from me. I don't believe that being fat is bad. Yeah. I don't believe that being fat is, is that I, is that I'm failing at anything. Mm-hmm. I'm just existing in my body and you have no, you have no hold or gravity or weight on how I live my life or see my body or move through the world. And you do not get to define what makes me feel good. What makes me feel like how I feel sexy. You, you have no part in that. Mm -hmm. And that system has no part in how I feel good. Yeah. So I get to totally redefine that. And I can also speak up for people that maybe don't know how harmful the language is. Hell yes. Yeah. 
I think it's so important that people are aware of that. Mm-hmm. I think that you're only at the beginning of a, uh, of a, a process of radically redefining the conversation and you're in a position to do that. And you yeah. have a voice that people listen to. Yeah. Um, I, I would say too, that if somebody is fat and has like a deep desire to not be fat, you know, you have to go back and do that work. You have to figure out why you have fat phobia. You have to figure out where it comes from. You have to start, you know, working through your self-talk. And for me, I started, um, what I would call like a materialized self-talk, which is I would, I would verbalize my thoughts out loud to see what was actually happening. Okay. What am I actually saying in my head when I do this? And a lot of it was pretty shameful. A lot of it was just like, Oh, I hate myself. Oh, that's why you're a fuck up. Oh, that's why you're fat. Yeah. If you want to feel better about your body, I believe the only way you could achieve that is through mindfulness, is through a constant and sometimes like annoyingly incessant questioning of your body to your environment and say, when I go to the gym, how do I feel afterwards? When I eat, Doritos, how do I feel afterwards? After I eat this salad, how do I feel afterwards? Vigilance. Constant vigilance. Just after every single possible thing. Okay, how do I feel? If I'm if I'm checking with myself, asking myself how I feel, if I'm not looking in the mirror in a way that is like um, you know, a determiner of good or bad, if I've thrown my scale away, then these are all it's a slow process. But it gets it gets you there. Yeah, it really does. Because honestly, I eat so much better now than I have in my entire life. When I stopped caring about my weight, it's bananas. I, I you could have never told me that I I would have I would have given up like fast food. And I don't, I just, we don't eat, I don't eat fast food. No. I don't eat it. I don't like it. It doesn't make me feel good. No. But before it felt like something that I was, it was like, uh, forbidden and, uh-huh. and you know, I could kind of get away with it and, but I would feel bad about it. And it was this like this cyclical thing. So to be able to look at something and I'll try it occasionally and then I'll be like, oh my God, I felt so bad after I ate that. It did not feel good. I'm able to have a conversation with my body. Not because of any guilt or because I'm a fat person eating fast food. It's more just, oh, I I ate that and I paid attention to how I felt. Yeah. And then I got the shits afterwards. So I'm not going to do that again. I've done. I've been more (laughs) mindful about my own eating since the beginning of our relationship. Mm. And it's amazing to me how much more aware I am of like when I eat a whole bunch of sugar or when I eat a bunch of processed food how do I feel about it afterwards? And it's never emotional guilt. It's always, oh my gosh, I never noticed that that made my energy wane at this certain time of the morning Mm -hmm. or eating that particular kind of food or eating this amount of meat or whatever affected my energy levels the way they did. So it's been really inspirational for me in that regard. Mm -hmm. And we go to the gym together a lot. Yes. And we love going to the gym. That's one of the kinds of movement that we incorporate into our routine. Mm -hmm. Um, We also do yoga around the house. We play tennis. We... On a hike. We went on a we hike go, today. We go on hikes. But the gym specifically is a an important place, I think, because there's equipment available there. Yes. Everybody should, I think, have access to a gym, a gym that is accessible and available for people with all different kinds of bodies. Yes. Um, but it's a different type of space. It's a social space. Yes. Right? It's yeah. not like the other kind of movements you incorporate. No. It is a loaded and I think for a lot of people scary <laughs> place 
What does the gym feel like for a fat person who loves their body? Um, it has taken me a long fucking time to feel this good at the gym. I, I feel like I, I've always gone to the gym, but I have gone to the gym for different reasons. And I would say that up until honestly, since we started weightlifting up until we started weightlifting that I would go to the gym out of, out of shame mm, yeah. that I would go to the gym because I felt like that's what I, I needed to do. Right. Because, uh, punish yourself. Yeah. P- punish. And like, that was a good fat person thing to do is to get on the treadmill and run or go on the elliptical and, you know, get my calories out. I don't know. I don't know how it works, right. but like, that's what I told myself. And I would never, ever, ever touch a piece of weightlifting equipment because I don't want to bulk up. That's not what I'm here to do. Right. Yeah. One thing I've noticed when you post videos or photos of yourself at the gym or working out mm-hmm. weightlifting, you get so much feedback but it worries me a little bit yeah. because it's like they're over congratulating you. <laughs> I worry about it too. Does that, does that, is that common? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I worry. I, I'm very careful about what I post at the gym because it's really important to me that I don't continue this narrative of like, I go to the gym because I'm trying to lose weight. I'm going to the gym because I like how weightlifting feels on my body and mm-hmm. I like feeling really strong. And that's yeah. kind of my new goal is these sort of like the, like, you know, the barometer of strength of like, yeah. what, what can I achieve through weightlifting now? Yeah. And, and I just like feeling strong, but I, I do worry about when I post videos that I need to be vigilant about con- consistently and quickly smashing any idea that says that I'm I'm finally taking care of my body or something. Well, you know? and you did that. You made a post yeah. where you were like, I you said like, I hope I'm fat forever. Don't yeah. worry. I like, please don't read into this that I'm trying to change my body. Yeah, you I know, the change yes. I'm trying to make is getting stronger. Yes. So you nipped that in the bud. Well, and I love that. Like, I, honestly, I never would have started lifting weights if it weren't for you. Really? Yeah. You were lifting weights in the gym and I thought, oh, I can't, I can't do, I can't be the fat girl at the gym lifting weights. And that's, that's not, that's not what I'm here to do. I'm here to like try to be thin. And then I kind of went, I just went over to what you're doing. I said, how, how do you do that? And you taught me and you showed me a bunch of, um, a bunch of ways to lift. And I just fucking fell in love with it. And then (laughs) you were like asleep one time. It was like in the middle of the night and I'm like scrolling through like, like gym rats, like these muscle dudes. And I'm like, yeah, okay. I can do like, that's how you do a clean and jerk. Okay. You know? So I want to say, um, whether you are just at the beginning of your body love journey, whether you are maybe somewhere in the middle or maybe you're somewhere where I am, where you've been at this for a while, I want you to know that you're perfect as you are, that a body is never wrong. A fat body is never wrong. It is the treatment and the culture around fat people that makes our lives difficult. And what we can do in this life is work on eradicating the shame around it. You are not failing. You have not done anything wrong. Your body is not broken. Your body is not bad. You are worthy of love. You are worthy of clothes that fit you and look good. You are deserving of a partner that understands you and loves you 
unconditionally, that loves your body, that thinks you're sexy, you are deserving of having good sex. You are deserving of having a job with an employer that doesn't discriminate you based on your size. You deserve to see people that look like you on TV, in shows, on stages. You deserve friends that encourage your self-love process and your body. You deserve all of those things. I would encourage you to love yourself as you are right now today. If you can love yourself right now as you are today, all things will come to you. But it starts, it truly does start with love. It truly does start with self-love. Getting rid of a scale, getting rid of an arbitrary assigned number that is just designed from an aesthetic point of view. If you're doing what you've always done, If you continue to diet, if you've done that for 20 years, if you've done that for 30 years, if you've gone back and forth and back and forth with your weight and you find yourself still being consumed with the idea of thinness, then try something else. Try something different. Try letting go of the system that has failed you. Try loving yourself radically as you are. Fuck yeah. <laughs> okay, we have we have more to this segment. I know this has been going on so long. This is a long episode, and I think that people are here for it. I think it's supposed to be long. So it is time for us to wrap up with our three closing segments. Yes. Our obsessions, mm-hmm. our poems, our reading of the tarot card. Beautiful. The gayest way and the most bipolar way to end a podcast (laughs) of this nature. Okay, honey. Obsessions. Okay. Would you like to go first, my bipolar love? Um, sure. I will go first. Are we quadrapolar? Uh, yeah. Cool. Yeah. I really feel bad for people that are like (laughs) depoled. That's, I think that's, I think that's what we settled on was the clinical term for people that were... Uh, someone rightfully pointed out, I think the term is neurotypical. Yeah, it's neurotypical. Um, we're going with depoled. Depoled, I yeah, think. Yeah, is... with the depoled. One day when we have merch, um, well, we have shirts that are like, I'm depoled, but I love someone with bipolar disorder. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, honey? Yes. What is going on in your bipolar brain right now? What are you obsessed with? Okay, well, I, I do want to say that I think... Um, if I'm really analyzing what I'm experiencing right now with in terms of my bipolar disorder, I'm in a bit of a depressive bout. Uh-huh. I'm just very stressed with things. And so I'm kind of obsessed about stress right now. Yeah. <laughs> All of my dreams are about stress and saving dying animals and yeah. like saving my family and saving you. Um, uh, so the things that I'm obsessed with are like, like they're not as fun uh, like I'm obsessed with drinking water right now because I feel like I'm just not able to drink enough water. So like I'm a little anxious right now because I don't have water next to me. These don't have to be fun, man. Yeah, Obsessions yeah, aren't always you're right, fun. You're right. But I would say, OK, the one that it, that does sound kind of fun is like I'm really obsessed with uh, making Christmas cards right now. Oh, my God. I've like, learned so much from you. We made the shit out of some Christmas cards last night. Yeah. And we have more to go. Yeah. So we're probably going to stay up pretty late making Christmas cards. I'm but, ready. But that... What a joy. Like, I'm so excited. I cannot wait to make more Christmas cards. I am going to collage my way out of this depressive episode if it's the last thing I do. So 
Is that it? Yeah. Those oh, are my things. Man, I'm trying to keep mine short this time. Okay. I'm taking a risk with this first one. Okay. I almost want to apologize to all of you in advance. I also want to apologize to my partner, Mary, in advance. What's happening? Not only is this a very weird thing to be obsessed with, it's also something I have to describe and I'm not totally comfortable with it. It's a cartoon I found on the internet that I can't stop thinking about. Mary, I showed this to you this morning. In this cartoon, it's three panels, Mickey Mouse walks into a bathroom, and these are really crudely drawn versions of these characters, by the way, walks into a bathroom, eyes gaping, Donald Duck is in the shower, and he has the curtain pulled back in in a panic. He says, don't get in, Mickey, I'm naked. In the next panel, Mickey says, what difference does it make? You never wear pants. And in the last panel, Donald Duck has pulled back the curtain to reveal that he is, in fact, not wearing any clothes. He's in the shower, but he has um, genitalia, like, around his neck. (laughs) Thank you for listening to that. That is by uh, Manuel Alvarez. You can go to his Tumblr if you like. (laughs) Should we edit that out? I'm leaving it. Are you okay with that, honey? Yes. Okay. The next thing I'm obsessed with is something that I read on another favorite subreddit, Shower Thoughts. Um, This is the shower thought. During a nuclear explosion, there's a certain distance of the radius where all the frozen supermarket pizzas are cooked to perfection. (laughs) I'm obsessed with that idea. (laughs) On a more serious note, my last obsession is um, I'm reading this book called Brain on Fire that this fabulous journalist named Susanna Cahelen wrote. Without giving too much of it away, she has this medical affliction that uh, triggers this month of, she calls it my month of madness, um, that triggers all these really fascinating, awful, terrifying psychiatric and physical symptoms. And this was a really celebrated book. It's really interesting. But what I'm obsessed with is I can't wait to read her next book, which is called The Great Pretender. And it's a true story. It's about in the 1970s, there was a Stanford psychologist who with seven other, I think seven other clinicians, um, pretended to have schizophrenia and went undercover to get admitted to mental institutions, which were then called asylums, um, to see how legitimate psychiatric diagnoses were and they had to stay until they'd proven that they were sane um, and came out with all these like really fascinating insights into the, into the kind of psychiatric industrial complex um, and how psychiatric evaluations are done. And they all got like diagnosed with weird stuff. And anyway, so I'm obsessed with reading that. If any of you guys have read it, I'd love to know your thoughts. That's the great pretender by Susanna Cahelen. It just came out. Um, And that's it for my obsessions. Wow. All over the place with those. Yes. The pizza uh, one is compelling, though, isn't it? I love the pizza one. I can tell that you are vaguely disappointed that I brought up the Donald Duck cartoon. It's just like I can't not look at it, and I'm mad that I'm looking at it. Right. Like, because the cartoon itself is just like a little disturbing. <laughs> <laughs> Routinely, though, I will become fascinated by something like this. And Mary is just like vaguely disapproving, but she lets me have it. You can. Ha- yeah, you can. You. I get it. Thank you, honey. I get it. I'm sorry. I just it's really beautiful to me. That's art. We don't talk about it, but that's art. Um, OK, it's time for the final segment. It's our poem of. Oh, no, we need our poem. Our penultimate segment. Penultimate. That was yeah. an excuse for me to use the word penultimate. You want to read your poem first? 
So the poem I've chosen is um, a poem by Melissa May, um, who performed this, I think, at the Women of the World Poetry Slam. Um, and so, that, of course, again, with all of the poems I love, there's a spoken word um, element to it. So if you are inclined, look it up. It's Melissa May. The poem is called Dear Ursula, which felt um, relevant to our topic today. In 2012, Disney released a line of villain dolls depicting Ursula, the classically full-figured sea witch from The Little Mermaid as a designer couture size zero. From one rolling midsection and tameless will to another, my sweet Ursula, I cannot imagine the sick flip of your stomach to see her image dissected, chin shaved, waist cinched, your silhouette robbed of every ounce of delicious curve, mm. to find after two decades of existence that your evil was more worthy of preservation than the iconic body that held you. You were the only Disney character that ever looked like me. Mm. Dear Ursula, while you may not have had the waistline of a princess, I'll be goddamned if you didn't have the swagger of a queen. Mm. The way you sashayed around your lair in full makeup, black flamenco number cut so low in the back that your every twist and shimmy displayed the gorgeous tuck of your rolls. You made back fat look sexy. You made living in this body a little less like a curse. Ursula, I wonder how they told you. Did they sit you down over tea, delicately frosted cakes lining your chipped porcelain, explained it as a marketing technique, a vehicle to make you more palatable to a culture that demands perfection? I hope you crushed the teapot in the clench of your fist. I hope you grew a hundred feet tall and drowned them in the whirlpool of your rage. I wish I could have watched you suck the voices from their tiny, breakable throats. I mean, wasn't it enough that they made you a witch? That you were already beyond the bounds of their franchise royalty? They expected little girls to recoil from the wicked inside your laugh, when instead they worshipped your honesty. Mm. Ursula, I don't want to cut you down into bite-sized little pieces. You weren't easy to swallow for a reason. Mm. I want you larger than life. Flaming red lips, black flamenco dress. I want the thick of your tentacles, your conjurer's hands, the jiggle of your ample bust. I want you dressed to the nines on a runway. I want every little girl to see a heroine in a size 24. Ursula, queen of the ocean, you were never just a witch to me. You were perfect. Every pound, every inch, every swell perfect. And I pity the poor, unfortunate soul who would dare paint you as anything less. <laughs> Honey. Yes. You're as hot as Ursula to me. Thank you so much for saying that. <laughs> okay, I'm excited. What do you got, baby? I'm going to read two, but they're both very short, okay. and I'm going to read them without pausing in between. Okay. I am a huge fan of this poet. His name is Eduardo Corral, 
And as just a little content warning, um, he uses a derogatory term about Latinx people in this mm. poem. Um, so it, it's it's with respect and fidelity to his work that I read it. Um, so this first one is called In Colorado, My Father Scoured and Stacked Dishes. <gasps> In a Tex-Mex restaurant, his coworkers, unable to utter his name, renamed him Jalapeno. If I ask for a goldfish, he spits a glob of phlegm into a jar of water. The silver letters on his black belt spell sangron. Once, borracho, at dinner, he said, Jesus wasn't a snowman. Arriba Durango. Arriba Orizaba. Packed into a car trunk, he was smuggled into the States. Frijolero. Greaser. In Tucson, he branded cattle. He slept in a stable. The horse blankets. Oddly fragrant. Wood smoke. Lilac. He's an illegal. I'm an illegal American. Once... In a grove of saguaro at dusk, I slept next to him. I woke with his thumb in my mouth. No que no tronabas pistolita. He learned English by listening to the radio. The first four words he memorized, in God we trust. The fifth, percolate. Again and again, I borrow his clothes. He calls me scarecrow. In Oregon, he picked apples. Brayburn, John Gold, Cameo. Nightly, to entertain his cuates around a campfire, he strummed a guitarra, sang corridos, arriba Durango, arriba Orizaba. Packed into a car trunk, he was smuggled into the States. Greaser, beaner, once borracho at breakfast, he said, the heart can only be broken once, like a window. No mames. His favorite belt buckle, an aguila perched on a nopal. If he laughs out loud, his hands tremble. Bugs Bunny wants to deport him. Cesar Chavez wants to deport him. When I walk through the desert, I wear his shirt. The gaze of the moon stitches the buttons of his shirt to my skin. The snake hisses. The snake is torn. This is called To the Angel Beast for Arthur Russell. All that glitters isn't music. Once hidden in tall grass, I tossed fistfuls of dirt into the air, dough after dough of leaping. You said it was nothing but a trick of the light. Gold curves, gold scarves. Am I not your animal? You'd wait in the orchard for hours to watch a deer break from the shadows. Mm. You said it was like lifting a cello out of its black case. Ugh. What? He's fabulous. He's also wow. a queer poet. I He's wonderful. Wow. So we now arrive. At the final segment of a very long episode, mm -hmm. a very productive episode. Yes. I'm proud of this one, and I think people like it, too. It is time. It's time. To consult. To consult. The wisdom, the wisdom of the tarot. Let's go. <laughs> you want to do the honors, honey? Yes. Wait, what are we consulting about? What our do we decide? Yeah, what's our question? We're going to ask the tarot... For further wisdom about Mary's journey with body love oh. and acceptance. Okay. Whenever you're ready. All right. Ooh. We got the reversed eight of swords, which means new beginnings, generosity, freedom, escape from fear. Wow. Yes. Good shit, oh, tarot deck. I'm stoked about that. Me too. Yeah, I'm really, because I know I'm in a new 
I'm on a new path. I'm on a new, a new version of this thing that I've been on for a while. And mm-hmm. I'm really, really excited about it. I don't know where I'm going. Yeah, I can feel it. But I'll let you know. I'll let, I'll let y'all know. I can feel it. And it's big. <laughs> That's what she said. It's big and fat. Sorry. Um, <laughs> thank you guys for listening. Here, I'll do it in NPR format. I'll okay. do, I'm going to be Sarah Koenig for the end of this. So thank you for listening. And if you have any questions or comments, not like other comments, but comments that'll really help us, please let us know. I just farted. Tell, <laughs> and tell your friends about this podcast if they find it interesting. It's like trying to plot the coordinates of a dream. Okay. Thanks, guys. Thanks, you guys. I don't know what we're doing next. Uh, Big fat queer. Queer? Queer. Are we going to be gay? Are we going to be gay next week? Are we going to do this? Let's talk about queerness next week. Let's talk about queerness. Did you queerness. like how I had to like systematically go through our title and be like, okay, big, big fat, fat queer, queer bipolar. Oh. Let's talk about podcasts. No, okay. <laughs> Thank you guys for listening. Till next time. Love you.